Welcome to The Divorce Podcast, a podcast that aims to address divorce, separation and co-parenting here in the UK, countering the often sensationalist way it's portrayed in the media, challenging the status quo and driving for reform. On each episode, I'm joined by experts to discuss divorce, separation and co-parenting from different angles and to give their opinions and to debate them. I'm Kate Daly, a relationship counsellor and divorce coach, co-founder of Amicable, the divorce services company, and host of this, The Divorce Podcast. In this episode, I was joined by Helen Thorne, a comedian, author, and co-host of the podcast, Scummy Mummies. I began by asking Helen about her marriage breakup during lockdown and what she felt the hardest part about getting divorced was. She explained to me why it was so important to have her husband's adultery noted in their divorce petition. And we discussed how she felt about the approaching change in the law to a no-fault system. I was also able to quiz Helen on how she makes her co-parenting relationship work when it's clear there is a sense of betrayal and that trust between her and her ex has clearly been damaged. I think you'll enjoy hearing about her dating anecdotes. And whilst Helen is well known for putting a positive spin on things, there's no doubt that listening to her candid portrayal of the breakdown of her marriage has been a really heartbreaking experience. But as ever, Helen approaches the future with humour and optimism and says that talking about her divorce helps her navigate the road ahead. If you really loved this episode or want to hear more episodes like this, then please make sure to rate us on your preferred listening platform. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, Helen. It's lovely to have you. I am very happy to be here. I'm so thrilled because I love talking about divorce. I love talking about being single and I love sharing my story. Oh, it's really great that you're here. We've been looking forward to having you on the podcast for a little while now. So delighted and very interested to hear what you've got to say about divorce and uh, being single and the body positivity as well. So let's start, if we can, with a little bit about your background and the context to your divorce. So I know that you met your husband when you were young and you've previously described your marriage as traditional, in quotes. Give us a little bit of context and tell us a little bit about, you know, how life started and your married life. Well, I met my husband at university when I was 19. We were both at Melbourne University in Australia and he was really one of my first boyfriends. So I sort of fell pretty hard and pretty deep. And he was a couple of years older than me. He'd traveled the world. I was a country girl from quite rural Australia. So meeting someone who had traveled the world was very exciting. And yeah, we just sort of stayed together. And I was very much focused on getting married from the get-go. I, my parents had been married for 58 years. My dad is a vicar. You know, the sanctity of marriage and the way marriage was seen was very much heralded in my family. And I grew up at church. And so every weekend or, you know, I was surrounded by weddings. And so I had this sort of unrealistic and almost sort of, you know, fantasy about being a bride. So I was very much focused on that in my 20s. And then we got married shortly after I had my first child, our first child together. And um, yeah, we were married for nearly exactly 10 years. And then, um, yeah, and in March 2020, I found out that he wasn't really who I thought he was, which happens to very many women, apparently. So as yeah, I found out. Yeah, it's it sounds like it was a real shock and surprise to you that you had no idea that this was coming and such awful timing at the outset of a pandemic as well. Yeah. Did you have an inkling or, or, or is that right? Were you genuinely, truly shocked? I was absolutely shocked, especially because we had gone through marriage counselling while he was having an affair. He failed to marry, mention that. And I thought we were working towards something 
together and we were five days off signing a mortgage to renovate our house. We'd been working on that for years. So there were no indications that he was breaking away from the family unit. And so when I found a love letter with, you know, a name I recognized on the back, I was completely floored. And, you know, my whole world kind of came tumbling down because I I really thought that we were getting better. You know, the kids are a bit older. We both got further on in our careers, so we're more comfortable financially. And so everything felt like, gosh, I've worked so hard to get to this point. Yes, we're going to have a great year together. And then everything was not what it seemed. And so I think, yeah, and then the pandemic happened a couple of weeks later. So everything I knew changed very, very quickly. Have you had the opportunity to go back and ask about that? Because a lot of people say they never quite get closure when something has gone wrong in a marriage in in the way that you're describing. So have you had the opportunity to go back and get any closure and to ask how could this be? Why didn't you say anything? You know, what what was going through your mind? Do you understand that side of it? Have you had that privilege yet or not? I mean, I, I can never fully understand why you'd be so cruel to someone. I, I just, I don't know and I can't. I don't think I can really kind of understand why you would do that to someone else. But we had couples counselling afterwards because I thought, well, look, I've got to have a relationship in some way, shape or form with this man because my children, well, they're now 10 and 13. So there's still a long road ahead of making decisions together. And so for me, that was very cathartic because I felt really supported. And I thought, well, for one hour a week, and it was just on Zoom or, you know, on audio, we spoke about how we felt about things and tried to move forward. But I I still find it really difficult, and especially when you're the aggrieved party, that, you know, you have to make good for the kids and you have to treat them with respect and all that sort of stuff. And it's hard, but I'm, I will, I will never forgive him. And I don't have to forgive him. And so many people say, well, you need to forgive to move on. And, and that's, that's incorrect. So I'm, you know, I've dealt with the anger. I've dealt with the pain. I've gone through lots of therapy and, you know, I don't really feel like he really apologized for it. I don't really feel like that. But then I had to make that decision to move on myself because I'm not going to be that bitter woman <laughs> in the corner. I was like, right, I've got an opportunity for a new life and that's what I'm going to focus on. So I guess it's good to sit in the sad and it's good to be angry and it's good to process it. But then it comes to a point where you're like, well, how do I want to spend my days? How do I want to use my energy? Is it towards being hateful against a person or is it about po- being positive about a new life that I've been given? And so that's what I choose to focus on now. And I think you recognize two really important things. One, like you say, if you've got kids, you inevitably have to have a relationship with the other person. And it's, you know, it's really key to recognize that by the sound of it. Certainly what we do, we always say the same thing, but you're right. That doesn't mean you have to forgive or like, you just have to have a positive parenting relationship in some way. Tell me how you've been able to do that, given the deep sense of betrayal you, you know, you clearly and understandably feel. Yeah, I guess I guess my love for my children will always override the hate that I have for my ex. And so I think, you know, when especially when the children are going through grief and they were trying to process it. And I think it was when one of my children said, Oh, when I grow up, will I will I cheat on my, you know, partner? And I said, No, baby, you won't. And I and I that really struck home. It's like half of their self-worth and their their emotions and everything is is their father. And so I never slag him off. And I always say, oh, have a lovely time with daddy and all that sort of thing, because I want them to have a really positive relationship with him and his family and all those sort of things. So my relationship with him is very much separate to to theirs. I still find it very difficult to be in the same room with him. It's, It's such a physical thing. And I'm sure other women who've gone through it 
it's gut it's a gut feeling you think oh that's that horrible mm. man <laughs> it's visceral isn't it it's really visceral i think the feeling is very visceral yeah and i think so and i we on the scummy mummies podcast recently interviewed um julia samuel and she said one of the hardest things is that there's still love there in that there are memories that 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 contain love with that person and sometimes that is more painful than the hate because that is the person that you loved and trusted and then they did that horrible thing to you. So it's real contradictions through the whole thing. And and I, I get sideswiped sometimes when, you know, I'll watch a film and it'll have a birth or, you know, a new baby and I think, oh, that's such a that was such a tender, beautiful memory. But then he's in it, you know, he's part of that. And it's hard to kind of not see those moments tarnished by his actions, mm. you know, later in Subsequently, the, later yeah. in the relationship. Yeah, definitely. And tell me what it was like trying to divorce and separate during those early days of the pandemic then. That must have been, you know, it's hard enough as it is without having your support network effectively confiscated. Yeah, it was a very cold process. You know, it's cold already because, you know, your your life and everything is, is literally just in black and white. It's in, you know, it's on the form E, you have to declare everything. It's all very, very, you know, very stark, but then not to have a friendship group, you know, I still haven't seen my parents since I separated and that was two years ago. Not to have that kind of warmth around you was very hard, but in a way it was, a, it was sort of, you know, pull, pull your big girl pants on and get on with it. And I did it all through, I think we had eight mediation sessions and the first one was in person and then it had to be over zoom and i must say even though um zoom is really impersonal it was really really helpful because when i was doing the zoom what i did is i just put a post-it note over his face and then to put really 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 rude swears over his face and it was very cathartic which you can't do in real life kate (laughs) (laughs) we always say the same thing it's actually much better to do these things virtually because you can have a sense of separation still, can't you? You're obviously having to interact and do the business that you're there to do, but ultimately you're in your own safe space and you're not having to physically interact with somebody. And I think it can be very helpful if you are still in that sort of very raw and sore place, you know, or, or there's any degree of concern in terms of you know, not wanting to be physically next to somebody, then I think it does work. And I think it does have its advantages. And a little bit of kind of distance in that process can be a really good thing. It it sounds like that's how it was for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I did, I did feel stronger. There was moments where I did, you know, I, I did cry during the mediation. I'm not going to pretend that was all like, oh yes. And I just got on with it and I was really strong. No, it really fucking broke me. And what was really hard was I think our last mediation session was exactly a year to the day almost to the hour of me finding the love letter and it was like a full circle of 365 days and I just thought god a year ago you were a different man to me and now I'm looking at this man going you know just give me the house (laughs) you know just you know just make it over and that's really confronting and that's a really sad thing and I'm not going to because I'm all about seeing the positive sides of divorce and being single and things like that but you do have to acknowledge that it's 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 um it's a very sad time and it's it's it is the end of something but also you've got the gift of something new yeah it is I think it's described often isn't it as a grieving process and I think that's right you have to grieve the loss before you can renew and move forward don't you and you have to give yourself some space and time to feel the loss and like I think you called it sitting with the sad earlier and exactly that so 
I don't think you can rush these emotions. They have to be processed. They have, you have to go through that kind of loop. And I'm also always struck when I talk to people that it's never just a nice steady escalation out of it. It's not just a nice little upward gradient into the horizon. There's a lot of to and fro, isn't there? Tell me about the messiness of thinking you processed a bit or got better a bit and then having to be flung back. Yeah, I think so. I think you've got the initial really hardcore grief and, you know, it's probably the first three to six months when everything is in turmoil. You're in the, you're in the sort of, you know, in the cyclone and everything's going everywhere. And then you get a bit of peace and calm and you, you, you start feeling a lightness because I think it's, it's, it's not sort of happy and sad. It's heavy and light because you wake up in the morning just going, I'm not carrying it today. I'm just going to, I'm going to enjoy going out for lunch with my friends or just being with the children or whatever. So I think that's it. But, you know, it's, it's milestones. It's like children's birthdays or family events, or sometimes you'll just be in the park and you'll see a really happy family together. And, you know, you'll just go, ouch, you know, I didn't have that. Or why didn't I have that? Or why did I choose such a terrible man? (laughs) You can be angry at yourself as well as them. You're like, oh, how did I end up here? But I've, I've never felt I've never felt bitterness or I've never felt jealousy towards other couples. But I have. There are times now. Now I'm to about two years in, or might have. I might be hanging out with a couple, and you just see the wife being slightly protective of the husband. I thought I'm not hitting on your husband. I'm not. But but I can see that being a single woman, and, I, and lots of women have told me this. There is a tiny threat there, and I was like. And, you know, and these aren't close friends or whatever, you know, and I just remember having a chat with her husband and he was like, oh, what's online dating like? And I was sort of telling him and the wife was sort of like yeah, you know, pushing him away from me. I was like, him. yeah. yeah. Wow. And he said, oh, it sounds great. And she said, oh, beg your pardon. I was like, yeah. <laughs> Whoops. Um, but, yeah, so I think, I think you know, it's, it's about navigating all those sort of things. And, yeah, and as I was saying, like you'll see a film or you'll hear the song from your wedding when you're in a cafe and it'll just sting you. But also what's really good now is that I know the sting doesn't last long and it's not as frightening. And also I'm not afraid to be a bit sad because I'm like, well, I'm very happy. But I get messages almost daily from women going, when do I feel better? And I think that's what people want. They want to know that there's a tick box process, but it's not. It's It just sort of it bounces around a bit for a while. And, um, yeah, it's completely not linear. And you want you want to be you want to be cured. You want, to, you want it all to be happy. But life isn't like that anyway, you know, regardless of whether you're in a marriage or single. No, I, I agree. We get asked that an awful lot of the time, you know, how long is it going to take? You know, when will I start to feel better? When should I date again? That's another one we get as well. But just before we move on to the kind of life after divorce, and one of the things that you've spoken quite publicly about is the importance from your perspective of acknowledging that it was your husband who had committed adultery when you divorced. And, you know, a lot of the things that we've been talking on on the podcast recently are um, around the fact that there are new laws coming into the UK. Uh, we will catch up finally with Australia, <laughs> where you won't have to blame your partner if you want a divorce and effectively no fault will come in. So does that mean you're sceptical about these changes and the removal of fault and ending the blame game? I think I can only speak on my behalf, but personally, it was incredibly important that there was a public declaration that he committed adultery. For me, that felt like a sense of closure, but also that he publicly signed that document saying it was my fault because I, yeah, I was very faithful and loyal the whole time. And, you know, my I've got less money now. I spend less time with my children. I, you know, I have had to compromise my entire life because of the actions of that man. And I wanted that acknowledged in black and white. And But I 
Completely. And when I wrote the book, I interviewed lots of people who had very much amicable breakups and that they did it really beautifully and kindly. And I think, yes, that's really important now. But I think I think there is something to be said about acknowledging that. And especially I know so many women who have been aggrieved and had, you know, unreasonable behavior. It's really important that that is stated because it's, it sort of, it does, it does give a sense of closure. And, and for me, it did, but, um, but I, I completely understand why no fault divorce system is, is, is very appropriate now because I think, you know, we are in a very much grown up society and, and you can find closure in other ways. Of course you can have divorce parties, have, have whatever you want to acknowledge that. But that choice was available to me and I was very happy to take it. <laughs> so did you have a divorce party, by the way? I should have asked you that. I will be having a divorce party. Yes, I will. Um, just because it's just been pandemic times. I bought the frock. I bought a frock and it's in white. It's in white because I didn't wear white to my wedding. So I wore a silver and a silver and gold Vivian Westwood dress for my wedding. And now I've bought a white Vivian Westwood dress. It's very low cut and very short. So it's quite obscene. Um, but I'm going to wear it with red shoes. And, um, yeah, but I'm just going to, but I thought I'd do it in the summer since my dress is so short. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get a bit of tan on your legs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, wow. That sounds amazing. But you think that will bring a sense of closure having, you know, marking your moving on, I guess. Yeah. And also I've been very lucky that, you know, I got to write a book and I've been on excellent podcasts like yours and written articles as well. And I think the more that I talk about it, the easier it gets. I feel really fortunate that I can sort of share my story because the more I share, then the more I'm reassured by the people who read the articles and say, thank you for telling my story. So I think that's it. But, you know, that this is a relatively new thing that we're speaking about it so openly. It's such a, it was such a shameful thing, you know, 10, 20, 30, forever that you were you were left and I have no no shame associated with my husband's affair that is that's on him and 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 so many people have asked that oh you know as soon as you found out did you want to make it work and I was like no as soon as I found out I was like that's done goodbye how'd you go this is even though we'd been together for 21 years there was not a point in which I kind of went oh how do I make this work I thought oh god no I, I never want to see you again so I think, yeah, so I had lots of lovely points of closure, but my the paperback version of my book's out in July. So I thought maybe I can do a party around then because that's sort of the final bit. Yeah. And you say you don't feel any sense of shame, but do you think stigma still exists then or do you think we're beyond that now? Oh, God, it's still, it's still floating around and especially being a single mum. And I like using the term single mum. I've got my kids five days a week. And someone said, oh, no, you're a solo parent or you're an independent parent. And I thought, no, I like single mum because single mums have had a really hard ride and, and they still are, you know, head tilt, are you okay, how are you surviving? And and it is getting harder and harder and harder for single parents. This year I'm running the marathon for the Gingerbread uh, Charity because I want to kind of raise money and awareness for what they're doing. But I spoke to the CEO the other day and she was saying because of the rise in fuel costs, because of, you know, the rise in just general costs, and so many women are still still don't get payments from their exes. Like there's a huge percentage. I can't remember what she said. I think it's over 50% or something ridiculous like that. Um, the women are still fighting just for like, you know, literally breadcrumbs of money. Yeah. So I think, I think that's something that I really want to kind of shout from the rooftops is that single parents and especially mothers are really discriminated against, uh, still in society. So, you know, and I'm very fortunate that I, I've got a platform, but also that I can, survive just about as a comedian but I don't know how long 
I, you know, I'll be doing this. So, you know, it's, it's a very difficult road to navigate. And I think that's why I was, I was very frightened for many years when I was married going, shit, what would happen if, if the marriage fell apart? Well, there's discrimination in all sorts of very obvious ways, but also in quite some, some quite subtle ways as well. Stuff like insurance and that kind of thing is way harder or way higher, more expensive for single mothers in particular. So, yeah, there's all kinds of discrimination and it's fantastic that you're raising awareness about it through gingerbread. So well done for that. I should definitely be cheering you on in spirit. Thank you. Um, <laughs> during that marathon. Absolutely. I think it's amazing. You've written your book and it's, as you say, it's coming out in paperback in the summer. When you reflect on your own experience and the writing of the book and all of the stories that you've heard, what do you think are the greatest challenges when you divorce? What do you think are the real obstacles for people now? I think it's letting go of the life that you think that you could only live. In terms of like, I think that so many, like I had a woman message me last night going, I'm going to stick with him because I just want to make this work and I've worked so hard for it for 20 years. I don't want to let that go. And that is the phrase, isn't it? Letting it go. Because, you know, it, it, you know, not having the same house, not having the same amount of money, all those sort of things that you think that is the only way that you can live. And it's not true, but it's frightening. And I think that's it. And also a lot of friends haven't officially got divorced because they're like, I can't do the paperwork. I can't. I was like, yes, you can. And there is so much help and information out there for you in terms of there's forums, single parent Facebook groups, there's the Frollo app, there's all these people who will help you. And the single parent community is one of the most supportive, supportive loving, yeah, exactly. um, welcoming, massive mm-hmm. champions. Yeah. So I think that's the biggest thing. I think you're right. I think the letting go of the dream and the the feeling that this is how your life should have turned out and now it hasn't. I think that's the, really the hardest bit and that just flexing up your mind to think about other ways of living and other options because I can remember having this conversation with my solicitor saying I can't possibly live uh, outside a six-minute walk radius of the local primary school. That's just not possible. I ended up living 13 minutes away and it sounds so specific and silly but it just didn't matter that it was 13 minutes or six minutes. But for ages, I was stuck in needing to be six minutes away. And it's those really small things because you can't countenance it. And maybe it's a particular London thing. There are certain districts and places that you are, you know, bound to by school or by your network or whatever. And the idea of just even loosening that a little bit at that beginning of that process felt really difficult. So I think you're right. I think it's the the letting go of, you know, your expectations of how life should be and asking the question, how could it be rather than how should it be? So, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. You talk about co-parenting as well. And I, I hear what you say about having to, you know, kind of separate your kind of emotional self from the job of co-parenting. It strikes me that there's there's very little training or stuff out there for that. We just assume that if you've been a parent, you will somehow automatically and magically transition into being a co-parent and I think there are very different rules around the way you co-parent versus parent you don't have the kind of lubrication of your relationship anymore when it comes to parenting your kids and just being able to tag team and that kind of stuff what have you found the hardest challenges with the co-parenting relationship I think, you know, and I've spoken to my own therapist about this is is not having any control over what happens when they're with their dad I think that's the really hardest thing. And like, 
you know, you know how you'd like to bring up your own children and how you'd like to have holidays or how you'd like to celebrate birthdays and all that sort of thing. And, and now they're going to do things in a different way. I think that, and also my ex went into another relationship very quickly after ending his other, his, the relationship he had the woman with the fairy. And now my children are going to live with that woman very soon. That's very difficult, but also I'm really happy. They're happy that their dad's buying a house. They're going to get some stability. So there's lots of brilliant, happy things to come from that. But yeah, you know, I, I, I've kept my, any, any person I've had, you know, I've had a series of flings and, you know, one night stands and things like that. But my two kids never meet any of the other people that are in my life because I want to keep that separate. But the kids were introduced to their father's new partner very early on and they found that very confronting. And that I found that very hard as well because I thought they're just, they're just coping with the grief of losing that relationship and now they've got to cope with a new one. So I think that's, yeah, that's really, really difficult. But I love that my children are very open with me and they're very happy to keep talking. And I think that's really healthy, even though some of the things I'm like, yep, it's okay. It's going to be all right. But I just have to make everything as happy and as healthy and stable when I've got them five days a week. And then, you know, that's my job and that's all I can control. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the idea that your bit of this is that if you are the parent with more of the time, your job is, as you say, to build their resilience, to be able to cope with changing from one parent to the other parent. That's what we can do to enable our children to cope, isn't it? Build that resilience and, and like you say, keep an open dialogue. But I hear what you say. It's frustrating um, when you don't have any control. I have the issue at the moment with things like pocket money where my ex gives both my children a very large amount of money each month and therefore they do what they like with their money and I have no way of sanctioning if they don't behave at home or do their jobs or any of that sort of stuff and it feels really frustrating because you, you're not parenting on the same page. So yeah, I, I think that's hard when you've got two different sort of value systems running and you're trying to help your kids navigate those two different value systems. I think that's quite tricky. Do you have any tips for people in terms of making that co-parenting relationship work, having, you know, navigated it quite so well yourself? <laughs> well, I I mean, I if, if it's available to you, I would highly recommend counselling afterwards, like slight, like couples counselling, because what I found was I would be, especially in the first six months, be really sideswiped by anger and pain and confusion. I'd be sending off text messages and actually going, right, for that one hour a week, I'm going to save up everything I need to say. I can say it in a calm manner and I can say it in a manner in which I'm sort of supported by a therapist. But that is, that is, you know, obviously that's an expensive option, but always never reply straight away. Yeah. Always yeah. take a deep, yeah. always take a deep breath. And if you want to, you spend 24 hours before you reply and, and get uh, sometimes send it to a friend first. I think that's really important because they will hurt you. They will f hurt you because you've got this deep connection with them. So I think that's really important. I think, you know, having plans in place are great, like in terms of, you know, alternating birthdays and Christmas. And if you can have them together, that's lovely. But if you can't, that's not the end of the world as well. And yeah, I think, I think just to have a few good friends you can blow off steam to. I know we're talking about co-parenting, but you need other single parents in your life in which you can go, dies being terrible and that you can trust and you can feel yourself with so I think that's really important and yeah and and just yeah always be positive about your ex around your children even when it's really hard that's hard but 
try <laughs> and always have the door open for conversations as well. My kids still talk about it and it's been two years. So I think, yeah, the conversation is continuous rather than once. Yeah, no, I always say that to people when we do our co-parent coaching. If you think you're going to have one conversation with them about this, you're wrong. You're going to have the same conversation, but when they're at different ages and stages, you know, throughout their lives, and you'll still be having it when they're in their 20s and 30s and so on, because it's a big chunk of somebody's life. It's a big life event. It's one of the biggest life events you can go through. And it's it's right that kids will process and repackage and re-narrate their story as they get older and see different sides of it and experience different things themselves. So I think it is an ongoing conversation. You're right as far as the kids are concerned. So, yeah, and I I definitely I'm with you on the don't respond immediately. That's just the most golden advice ever. But I also think it's important, as you say, to have other single parent friends because you want a role model that this is a normal for so many people, a normal way of life. And if you're surrounded by just couples, it can be quite tricky for your kids or even for you, can't it, to be constantly surrounded by couples. So I think it is important that you go out and make a conscious effort to know other families who are in the similar situation. I think it helps to normalize stuff. Let's talk about the joy of being single then, because you've, again, you've spoken openly about the joy of being single. What do you feel, that you're happily single, or do you think that you're just single momentarily and looking for a relationship? Where are you in your sort of journey to in Singleton? Well, I've, I've, I've met lots of lovely men along the, <laughs> the way, and I think, I think what I sort of set out when I started dating, I was about three, three months after I separated, because the first three months I was in lockdown, so it was impossible anyway. I wanted to meet really different men to who my husband was, who've got, you know, different backgrounds, different ages, different careers, personalities, all that sort of stuff. And because I dated my husband from when I was 19, I never really dated. So I'm really keen to have different experiences like going to the theatre or going out for nice dinners or going for a night away or things like that. So I, I'm i still in the exploration stage and I, and I, I have – I've got a few different guys that I meet up with occasionally and, and I'm sort of off the apps. I'm not, I haven't dated anyone new for about about six months actually, but I, I don't have anyone kind of permanent. I just have a few people that I've like, rotating I them around. I, I got, I've, got, I've got a roster. No, yeah. <laughs> I've got, I've got people who I like, you know, I've got a friend who's an artist and we'll go to exhibitions together and things like that. And some, yeah. you know, sometimes it's not in a romantic capacity, but I've got, I've just met some really lovely, interesting men. And, and I have gone through the process of, you know, there's ghosting and dating quite younger men, older men, all sorts of things. And, you know, the process can be hard. And there's sometimes I've wanted to see other people more and they've said no. And I've had to say no to people. And that that's a very good skill. When someone said, oh, I'd like to see you again, I'm like, look, I don't want yeah, to. Yeah, it sounds brutal. Yeah, and I've gone. I worry I'd be just like, yeah, that's fine, that's fine. And I'd endlessly be going out with people because I just don't want to say no to somebody. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. And But when I've been ghosted, I've been, like I had six dates with a guy and then he just disappeared for six months and then popped up again and was like, hi, how are you going? I'm like, well, what happened? Why did you disappear for six months? So, you know, I think there's pluses and minuses of how easy online dating is. It's so quick. You know, I once connected with a guy, I think it was like five or six o'clock. And I said, oh, I'm coming to Clapham. He said, I'll meet you at pub at nine. We met at the pub and at 11 o'clock he was at my house and we were having sex. Like really quick, you know, it's really instantaneous. And then he left at two and I never saw him again. So, you know, it, was, it is like fast food. It's literally like Deliveroo. And it was glorious. And we were very much understood what was going on. He was 31 and incredibly good looking and had a lovely time. But, you know, that was 
that was in the summer after I separated. So I was doing quite reckless things in a safe manner, everyone, before you, before you, um, get concerned. But, uh, you know, it was consensual and all that sort of thing. But there's some, there's some kind of glorious deliciousness of that as well. Like, because I haven't had that before. And again, it's never when my children are around and it's just about me being an adult making fairly Your silly choices. choices. Yeah, absolutely. But but it's about being desired again. Like, you know, the love obviously had gone out of my relationship and and he obviously didn't find me attractive. So to, to have young men fancy me is 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 a tonic. It's it's, it's absolutely it's the elixir of life. So I'm, I'm I'm quite happy about that. But I feel really satisfied in all my other aspects of my life in terms of my career and my house and my children and all that sort of thing. So my priorities for sex and men are very, very different to so what they were when I was 19, when I was looking for love and potential life partner. Now I just don't want a life partner, thank you very much. <laughs> and do you think <laughs> on a Friday ever, night one. Well, do you think you ever will or do you think that's that's part of the kind of luxury of having, you know, had a family and moved on now and to be able to say, well, I don't need – one person to commit to I can live my life in this way for as long as I choose now I mean that's part of modern relationships is it yeah I guess I haven't met anyone that's made me think that way and I think there's a safety in that and I think there's I think I've made decisions about dating younger men because of that because there's no chance of me kind of being really fully you know because they're a bit unreliable but I'm like oh you're cute and I'll see you Friday night but I think I've done it in a very protective way because I'm very, very scared of being hurt. And I'm not afraid to say that. I'm still healing from that. I think that's going to take a long time. But there's nothing wrong having little flights of fancy along the way. But I, yeah, I think the thought of having a proper relationship like that completely terrifies me. And so, so these, this, this is quite satisfying in a very superficial way, but, um, I'm having fun and I don't, you know, I, again, I, I talked to my therapist about this and she said, well, no, this is okay for this time because you don't want anything sort of deep and committed because there is, yeah, there's a massive risk to being that vulnerable with someone. Yeah. And you're, you're still only a couple of years in, aren't you? So it's, it's still quite new still from your perspective, I guess, isn't yeah. it as well? Yeah. No yeah, rush. and I want to have fun while I'm still, yes, you know, youngish and and and, and nimble and and fit and healthy. You know, I'll, I'll hang up my dating boots later. Yeah. Oh yes, please. <laughs> it's been absolutely fascinating and lovely talking to you. Uh, we're coming up to the end of the time. If you had to give somebody like a top tip or a bit of hope, if some, if there are people listening to this who are perhaps at the beginning of a divorce or a breakup, but what would you say to them? I would say ask for help and reach out to friends because the moment that you let go and you say that you're broken, you allow so much more love in. That's brilliant. Where can people find out more about you? You've got your um, Scummy Mummies podcast. What's the address for that one? Uh, um, on Instagram, we're at Scummy Mummies, and you can listen to the podcast via the website, which is just scummymummies.com. And I have an individual um, Instagram account, which is called It's Me, Helen Thorne, Thorne without an E. And you can find me, and I've written lots of articles about divorce and separation and being single. So you can just Google Helen Thorne, and I, I pop up all over the place. Brilliant. And just to say the name of the book again, so if people want to buy the paperback version in the summer. It is called Get Divorced, Be Happy, How Becoming Single Turned Out to Be My Happily Ever After. And it is available on audio if there are people who don't want to read it on on the tube or next to their husband in bed. <laughs> yes. That's a much more subtle way of doing it, isn't it? I like it. Thank you. <laughs> yes. 
And of course, you can find me on Twitter at Kate underscore daily. You can hear more about new podcast episodes by following at divorce underscore podcast. And you can subscribe to this podcast on the divorcepodcast.com. Thank you so much, Helen. Really lovely to meet you. Thank you for your candid exploration of all that is divorce. And thank you too for listening. <laughs>